0: Hello and welcome back to Mind Over Chatter, the Cambridge University podcast. I'm Nick. I'm James.
1: And I'm Naomi. And together we're inviting you to join us in our
2: conversations with clever,
1: curious people here in Cambridge.
0: In this second series, we're talking about futures.
2: And in this fourth episode, we're asking the question, what would a more just future look like?
1: In this episode, you'll hear about justice, equality and my little ponies ethnographic and participatory research and the eye of Sauron, an existential risk, artificial intelligence and an extended titanic metaphor for which we are, for once, not to blame.
2: So who were we talking to in this episode?
0: We talk to an anthropologist and science, technology and society scholar.
3: Hi, I'm Alexa. I'm an anthropologist and I'm a research associate at the Leverhulme Centre for the Future of Intelligence and at the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk.
0: A legal scholar and research associate in existential risk.
4: Hi, I'm Natalie and I'm also a research
5: associate at the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk.
0: And a professor at the Faculty of Divinity.
5: Hi, I'm Esra, I'm the Sultan Qaboos Professor of um, Abrahamic Faith and Shared Values, and also the Director of Cambridge Interfaith Program.
1: As usual, we began by asking our guests to tell us about their research.
3: I'm an anthropologist, and I study the societal impacts
4: of um, technologies, mostly AI technologies. I'm an international lawyer, and I'm specifically interested in um, how global justice relates to existential risk.
5: I work on relationships among Jews, Christians and Muslims um, in the Middle East and in Europe.
0: Basically, in this episode, we want to sort of explore what a more just and fair future might look like. Um, What do we mean by fair when it comes to societies?
4: Mm-hmm. it's a great question and a very big uh question and a lot of people have uh written about this quite a lot over the course of history um so I'm not really sure if I can uh entirely do this justice here. but I will say um when we're thinking about what's fair quite often we um have in our minds an idea of you know distributional fairness you know like who has um how much of the outputs of our economies, how is our wealth distributed, um, how is our land distributed, how is our money distributed, um, and that's one really good way of looking at it. And you can also have a think about, you know, equality in terms of uh, contributions, like who, who's contributions I recognize as valuable in society, who is given the dignity um, as a worker in society. And I feel like I've now been monologuing. So I'll let someone else
0: talk now. (laughs) Not at all. So Alexa, what do you think? Do you agree about this sort of contributions?
3: I do. You know, I think about fairness a lot um, in my work on AI, because there can be a sort of algorithmic idea of fairness, which can be um, fairly narrow and somewhat not, not easy to address, but let's say that it could be addressed uh, to some extent along technological lines. But I think that we can never think about fairness just in that kind of algorithmic flat way. We also have to always think about how it's intersecting with the, the whole world and the way that um, opportunity and risk uh, and dignity is really spread out
5: unevenly across our societies. When I hear this question, I am thinking one of the most important challenges in front of us is balancing fairness or more so equality with diversity. How can we have societies where, you know, differences are also accepted and that, um, you know, people are not only given resources because they are seen as deserving, because we know that so many resources have been taken away from people by the idea that they do not deserve because of their skin color, because of their religion, because of an idea they hold on to. So how are we going to maintain that? I love that focus on plurality, Isra. I I know it is a difficult one, too. Because we sometimes feel like we know what everyone needs and everyone wants, but we also know that not everyone wants the same things, but also at the same time, we should not make assumptions that they do not want X, Y, or Z. So that that I find as one of the biggest challenges.
4: And I think just as you say, Isra, it's about, um, you know, whose voices are we um, hearing in in that process, um, who, who is at the table when we're having discussions about what the future looks like. Because you're exactly right, we can't assume that people want a certain thing, or don't want a certain thing, actually.
3: You know, I love this idea of the table, because that's something we talk about a lot, like, you know, who, who has a seat at the table, who has a, a voice at the table. But I also maybe like to think that we could move away from a deficit model of this and we could start thinking about also uh, equity and fairness and justice in, in a different way to think about like actually how exciting will it be like when we have a dinner party at this table and we actually get to hear. Um, these incredible ideas that maybe people haven't had the space to express. So I think about, you know, what losses we may have had in history when we didn't get to, like, see the art produced by women or we didn't get to hear the music produced um, by women of color or that we didn't get to see the science that entire populations of the earth, you know, had in them to to contribute.
1: Can I just ask e- each of you at this point because we have heard we've heard fairness we've heard justice and we've heard equality uh, and we've heard other things as well. Are, are those all synonymous for you guys? Are they do they all basically mean the same thing?
5: I, I think among them, I like the justice the most. <laughs> I think that is what I want in the world because justice does not assume equality um or sameness. There can be difference, but we can still make claims for justice without wanting to be the same. Um, and justice is also not peace. Sometimes people assume that when there is peace, meaning when there is no fighting, that must be it must be fine. But it is not. We have lots of cases of people have been Quite down, or they um, do not have the means to speak. I would second that. I feel like those terms are
3: not all the same, but the most powerful among them is is justice.
4: Yeah, I think justice definitely speaks to um, a wider range of people and almost everyone. When we're talking about equality, often what we're talking about is equality of opportunity, right? You know, this idea that like everyone should be given the equal chance in life and kind of in terms of education access to experiences all this kind of thing but I think we have to realize that this is only really the starting point and even a society in which there was perfect equality of opportunity it might still have these great inequalities um in, in terms of wealth in terms of power um and it might be quite unjust in some ways um so I also tend to agree that like Justice is such a powerful concept. Ezra, you mentioned at
1: some point in an earlier um, answer, you mentioned um, empathy and plurality. Now, empathy is almost universally seen as a good thing, you know, capital G, capital T, um, you know, almost certainly necessary to help create a more fair and just society. But I believe I'm correctly saying that some of your research points to a possible downside of empathy. Um, Could you tell us a bit about that?
5: Yes, um, let's say not not suspicion, but let's say my nuanced approach to empathy came out of my research. Um, I have been working on um, Holocaust memory education programs designed for Muslims in Germany, where there is a lot of um, emphasis that Muslims do not, um, uh, you know, have empathy towards the Jewish victims, that, yeah, that they are so anti-Semitic that they cannot have this empathy. So I have been thinking a lot about that. And also, I have been thinking about how the youth that I have been working with, they, they had intense feelings of empathy. So how am I going to reconcile that? And the more I talk to the Holocaust educators and also the youth, I have realized that in that context, but I think it exists in other contexts too, there is one understanding of empathy. For example, in this very specific context, um, it is more from the white German perspective that they are expected to take a position of the repentant perpetrator, And then they are asked to imagine themselves in this powerful position and then put themselves on the um, uh, place of victimized Jews, you know, feel badly, sorry, you know, and then come back having transformed. But I have realized that the Muslims in this context were imagining themselves as they could also be victimized. You know, so they were very closely affiliating with them, with the Jewish victims. And then they would say, oh, no, if this happened again, then we would be victims. You know, so they were expressing fear. And this was driving the Holocaust educators crazy, because in the German political um, landscape, you know, not increasing far right now, um, but... uh, you know, the kind of national identity they have established for themselves successfully since the Second World War, that you should um, never imagine yourself as the victim, that you should take the perpetrator position on your shoulders and try to deal with that. You know, so then I have also realized lots of political emotions are like that, compassion, empathy, or or many others. You know, if we base our choices on these emotions, that is also difficult to go to, um, yeah, more more just places. There, there are also lots of expectations uh, that go into those emotions.
4: Uh, Ezra, that's so interesting. Um, is that kind of like pointing to in a way like a lack of empathy on the part of the German Holocaust educators in terms of like not being able to even imagine what it must be like to be a Muslim in that society.
5: Yes, exactly. And also empathy is um like put into this box. It should take only this form and this is the way you should feel it and out of this politically correct place will be reached. It would be also the same for compassion. You know, it assumes that, you know, you have everything and for a moment you think about people who do not have and then you come back and then you decide to give. But, you know, then who gets to have the compassion and who maybe cannot have it?
1: And and Alexa, can I ask, in the context of your work, so you clearly are thinking about fairness and justice, but does does empathy and compassion come into that equation for you
3: yeah I love this conversation so much and it makes me think about um the distinction between cognitive empathy and emotional empathy that um some social science researchers have made so thinking about empathy um maybe less in terms of an emotional response, but more as a way to sort of systemically um, begin to understand something from someone else's perspective.
2: Okay, hang on, time out. You guys started talking about fairness, but this led quickly to talk of justice and equality.
0: What's that about? Yeah, justice, fairness, and equality are vastly different things, it turns out. And achieving one doesn't mean you have the others. A bit like Martin Luther King's, no peace without justice, except with peace and justice instead of, say, fairness and justice.
1: Everyone was in agreement, however, that justice is key.
0: We can break down the idea of fairness to the different ways in which certain resources are distributed, like wealth, power and land.
1: Although fairness is also about individuals and groups, Getting a fair acknowledgement of their contribution to otherwise collective resources.
0: Basically, the key point is that a fair distribution of resources isn't necessarily an equal distribution of resources. So fairness doesn't always equal equality.
1: Yes and we don't necessarily know the fairest way to divide resources.
2: Am I right that Alexa mentioned something called the deficit model? What's that?
0: Good spot. The deficit model is a way of thinking about social inequality by framing things in terms of what someone is lacking. This perpetuates the idea that certain groups have failed to acquire a particular resource for themselves and are therefore dependent on others to provide it for them.
1: Exactly. And as the name suggests, this model implies a deficiency of a particular group, when maybe they don't really care about that thing anyway. I, for example, am deficient in My Little Pony dolls, but it doesn't really bother me. I think.
0: As Ezra said, different communities have different needs, although I suspect nobody really needs a My Little Pony.
2: So is this why all of our guests agreed that justice is maybe the most useful thing to talk about? Because it doesn't assume the sameness of simple equality?
1: Exactly. Justice means catering to the specific needs of different groups, which is not the same as just distributing resources equally.
0: A good way to think about all of this is through how we go about catering to medical needs. Distributing medicine equally between all people brings about equality.
1: LEMSIP for all!
0: Exactly. But providing medicine only to those people who are sick is fair. If less catchy. And ensuring that all of those who are sick have an equal opportunity to get the medicine is just.
1: And identifying who should get the medicine isn't just about deficits. As in, it's not just about who doesn't already have the medicine, as clearly some healthy people won't have it and won't need it. So in trying to work out who should get the medicine, we also need to find people that want and need it. One way to do this is to use empathy as a way to try and learn about other people.
2: But did I hear Ezra correctly? There might be some possible downsides to empathy?
1: Yes you did! I knew there was something funny going on there!
0: Well, firstly, empathy means different things to different people. Often we think of empathy as putting ourselves in the shoes of those who are less fortunate, as a way of inspiring ourselves to offer some help.
1: But justice means treating everyone as equals, not imagining yourself as being superior in some way. And sometimes, not always, using the language of empathy and compassion could reinforce an image of society being divided into the haves and have-nots. At which point, it might not actually be as much of a good thing as we always
0: assume. This also brings us to Alexa's point about different ways of thinking about empathy. She suggested that Rather than thinking about empathy as an emotional act, as something we do to make us feel more compassionate, we should think about empathy as a cognitive act. This means we should consciously try to understand the needs and wants of other people in order to better appreciate what sort of distribution of resources can best achieve everyone's goals.
1: And this is why ethnographic work, which is where a researcher immerses themselves in the group they're studying, rather than peering in from the outside like some sort of ethically approved Eye of Sauron. This is why ethnographic work is so important to learn about the different priorities of different communities.
0: Just thinking about going back to sort of empathy and and risks again. Now, uh, we've just mentioned um, AI, but Natalie, I'm sort of thinking about um, your research sort of touches on inequality and potentially, you know, how that contributes to existential risk. Um, Yeah,
4: at the Center for the Study of Existential Risk, um, there's a group that's just started up recently, um, which works on uh, global justice and global catastrophic risk. And so what I guess we're really interested in is, um, yeah, like how these questions of justice and equality intersect with um existential risks Um, and by existential risks i really mean kind of anything that could pose um a threat to kind of uh the kind of extinction of humanity which sounds kind of drastic um but um it includes stuff like climate change which we all know about um but also some risks which might not be so um high profile right at the moment like the nuclear threat um or um, artificial intelligence, according to some people as well. Actually, you know, there are lots of um, groups of people who, over time, especially in the last, you know, 500 years, have kind of faced their own existential threats in terms of either, you know, conquest and colonization or possibly more recently um, their country going underwater because of climate change or something like that. And so there are all these groups of people who who have actually been facing existential threats for kind of a long time. Um, And this is kind of, um, and this is a fact that the field has largely um, ignored, like it really hasn't engaged with this at all. And this is part of the question of justice in a way, because it's like, who is contributing to these conversations? Who's, Who's... Forms of knowledge I recognise as valid, um, whose voices are being heard. Uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll I'll stop rambling about that one now. <laughs>
0: That's all right. Um, that was good, and I, I, that leads perfectly. So if we're thinking, like Alexa, I'm just thinking about how we sort of link global. Going back to sort of how we link global injustice um, and voices um, to existential risk, because Natalie just pointed out that voices and narratives come up.
3: Um, yeah. Well, I think that. Thing that I think that we could do much more of is thinking about um, participatory futures. So this would be a sort of systematic way of bringing people together to imagine the kinds of futures that we want, so that maybe we move a bit from a very reactive understanding of risk, uh, where we're always responding to the you know threat of climate change, to the threat of AI, to um, Nuclear threats, etc, et etc, cetera, et cetera, and we begin to actually imagine the futures that we want.
1: when we're talking about the relationship between sort of global injustice and existential risk, are we also talking about the idea that global injustice might cause or um, lead to an existential risk rather than just the way in which that risk is distributed amongst different communities?
4: Yeah, I think absolutely that's a strong possibility um. This is kind of a a topic that we're working on um kind of at the moment like this is ongoing work, but i think um, it, it's really plausible that the more unequal the society, the more um potential kind of strife and conflicts there can be, and the more kind of unstable it is because you have um the few people at the top who are maybe you know comfortable and maybe hubristic and maybe you know like have a lot of power you have a lot of people on the bottom who are maybe you know resentful um or 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 um disenfranchised and you can just imagine the ways in which this might like exacerbate these risks that we face in terms of technology um, in terms of climate change very clearly. Um, it seems that like inequality is this, um, it, it just like makes everything worse. Um, it, it's a real, its it might not be a threat in and of itself, but it's definitely a threat multiplier when we're thinking about existential threats.
3: I absolutely agree with what Natalie just said I think there's so much scholarship across discipline that highlights um, these troubling links between social inequality and political and economic instability authoritarian forms of government civil unrest violent conflict forced migration so yeah I think it's a real driver of
4: risk and actually this comes back to what Ezra said it's as if we're all in a big boat let's say we're all on a cruise liner. we're on the Titanic, and there's this, you know, like, lots of people are, you feel like, are underneath the decks, and there's a hole in the bottom of the boat, and it's, you know, like, and the people on the top deck have only really just started um, noticing at the point when the deck, you know, slips and slides and tilts, um, except there's the people on the bottom who have noticed that the hole has been there for a long time, um. And it's this inequality of the mal distribution of, you know, like, you know, like, of the weight of all the people in the ship that's caused this in the first place. Um, yeah, there might not be an exact analogy, because I um, recall that in the case of the Titanic, there was an iceberg, not just
5: people on the boat. There but yeah, this yeah. Uh, I, I think this is a, a great analogy, and also it reminds me very much of the discussions about the COVID vaccine, right? You know, to make the point that the UK or the US, you know, the affluent countries who are able to buy a lot of the vaccine and now are vaccinating their populations. Are asked to share some of it with other countries who don't have the means. And the argument that is being made is not that it is just, you know, that is, like, those people are also dying too, just like you and your grandfather and grandmother. Uh, but if we don't vaccinate them, the virus will mutate and it will come back to you, right? You know, so it is always coming back. The idea that it will affect you too. That is why you should share some of it, not because, it's an issue of justice or that we all belong to the same humanity.
4: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Okay, hang on, pause again. What's existential risk?
0: Sounds pretty scary, no? An existential risk is one that could threaten to make humans extinct, like climate change and nuclear war, the sort of thing to keep you up at night.
1: You know what keeps me up at night? Videos on Facebook about things made from wood and epoxy in various combinations. That and reading Wikipedia articles about the Titanic.
0: Well, (laughs) the thing is, different groups of people are at different levels of risk, and their ability to respond to that risk is also different. This makes justice, inequality and fairness important when thinking about existential risks.
1: The field of existential risk is experiencing a change from thinking about how particular technologies might create existential risk towards thinking about how society is put together such that some risks might be particularly heightened and others diminished.
0: Also, what even counts as an existential risk is heavily dependent on who you ask. For example, some risks, such as climate change, pose a much greater threat to people living on coastlines in the global south and in areas more prone to extreme weather.
1: And if you were to ask me... Well,
0: we're not asking you. If
1: you were to ask me, then I'd say sentient Tamagotchis are pretty much the definition of an existential risk.
2: Okay, I'm gonna jump in here. So, how can we make the study of existential risk more just? Alexa mentioned participatory futures, what's that?
0: So, this refers to the process of integrating the traditional tools we have for predicting the future with participatory research to better understand the perspective of different communities.
1: And before you ask, participatory research is a form of research focused on specific communities and the challenges they face based firmly on the involvement of those community members at every stage in the research.
0: And by combining traditional predictions with participatory research, we can better predict the sorts of risk different communities might be exposed to.
1: Sounds a lot like some of the stuff we were discussing in the first series about climate change. If you haven't listened yet, go do that after this episode. And if you already have listened to the first series, listen again. Our episodes are the
2: gifts which just keep giving. Okay, and the conversation then moved on to discuss AI or artificial intelligence.
0: Yeah, so in the area of AI, researchers like Alexa aren't only looking at what risks does AI pose, but rather what risks does AI pose and for whom.
1: Which brings us neatly onto the role which artificial intelligence might play in perpetuating inequality. Almost as if we planned it or something. Uh, Alex, I wanted to, to point a question in your direction. So your research, if I understand it correctly, focuses on how uh, technological innovations such as artificial intelligence can impact um issues of equality, fairness, and justice. So we have a whole other episode in this um, series where we think in detail about artificial intelligence and how it might affect our lives in the future. But I'm wondering if you can tell us specifically about why AI might be a concern when trying to create a more fair or just society.
3: Um, Yeah, well, what we have discovered now i think through quite a bit of research is that ai does seem to play a role in driving inequality um, through uh, bias for example um biased algorithms that are weeding out women for um uh, for um Jobs or not showing them high-paying jobs as they are doing their kind of Google searches um, through basically new forms of um, algorithmic redlining that are really negatively impacting Black communities, Latino communities, through things like mortgages, um, through problems in uh, algorithms in healthcare that are discriminatory. So, yeah, so there's a lot of worrying research that has has come out um, to show that AI is really uh, very much embedded in in our societies and informed by all of the inequalities of our societies and then begins to multiply them. So there's this this, um, really disturbing uh, kind of feedback loop.
4: And Alexa, you can um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm given... um, but uh but 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 I um, I believe as well that there's this effect where like artificial intelligence is um, displacing quite a lot of work of people, and so like it's having these effects on workers and kind of like uh, increasing the kind of structural inequalities between like workers and um, kind of other people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I you put me. it really
4: well. <laughs> you <put laughs> it really well.
0: Do, you, do you mean? Do you mean um, in like skill sets in terms of like the different skill set jobs that might be and not be and replaced? Is that what you meant?
4: I mean, I've read some research that indicated that um, particular yeah, like kinds of skill sets will be more readily replaceable with artificial intelligence, um, and and that might uh, impact just proportionately on on groups that are already um, kind of underemployed or economically worse off
3: yeah I think the labor impacts of AI are um, really big and important and complex because it's not just along like one axis or something I think we have everything from the way that AI um is so intimately entangled with the platform economy and the kind of uberization of the economy. So that, that that's one thing to think about. There's things to think about in terms of like how jobs will be automated, um, as you said, Natalie, and, and who who will suffer the the most from, from that kind of automation and whose jobs may not be automated, but who may... Um, have worse working conditions, nevertheless, you know, that whose jobs may um, become less less well rewarded. Um, and then we also have this whole thing in which we have to think about the way the AI itself is full of invisible human labor through um, things like ghost working or, you know, through people who are working on um, Amazon's kind of, you um, what do they call it now the mechanical Turk so there's all sorts of labor implications
1: so can i can i ask again about um you know we you kind of mentioned the this intersection between artificial intelligence and you know a more just and fair society and i'm just trying to tease apart three different things i think i can see here there's the idea that it perpetuates maybe existing inequalities the idea that it might Multiply existing inequalities, and the idea that that maybe it creates some inequality. I mean, like, are they all in the mix? There is it more one than the other? Have I understood that correctly?
3: I think it's really all in the mix, and um, because we're talking about these very complex socio-technical relationships, where everything is is knit together. So maybe like one thing to think about here is. Um, how Joy Bolomini and um, Deb Raj talked about gender shades. So there's a really important study that showed that a facial recognition is works is less accurate for dark skinned people, particularly dark skinned women. So that was a really important insight, but if you just correct facial recognition technology so that it's accurate for dark skinned people and dark skinned women, that doesn't make it just or fair technology because we have to think then about the ways in which even of v- absolutely accurate <laughs> facial recognition technology will be used uh, in differential ways within communities who are already uh, over-policed and over, or like used by, yeah, also ICE in, in the U.S. used by immigration. So it's like, you there's so this I think goes back to our, our initial Uh, question about, well, what's fairness and justice? So you could have a kind of technically fair facial recognition technology that was just as accurate um, for Black women as it is for white men, but that would not make it a just technology.
5: May I ask a question as, you know, coming from humanities and following things on the uh, artificial intelligence only from newspapers? So in that my understanding is very limited, but can it be that it is produces and magnifies injustices because they exist and because they are used by companies who who are already driving this or by governments who are um, fostering inequalities? Could it be? an alternative vision, you know, for example, the jobs that artificial intelligence will make, um, um, you know, redundant, that artificial intelligence will take over, are already the exploitative jobs that do not give that much space for creativity. So what if artificial artificial intelligence takes over them and then the governments give a basic income, you know, can there be a, you um, you know, liberatory um, possibility out of this? Yes, I, yeah, I think there
3: could be. So I'd say two things. I'd say that one thing that's interesting to me is that we spend a lot of time um, thinking about, okay, what are the effects of artificial intelligence on society, which of course we should be doing, but in many ways the effects are quite easy to predict because we can look at um, what which groups of people in society already um, suffer the most vulnerability and discrimination and then we can usually guess correctly that those are the groups of people who will be most affected by artificial intelligence so there's i think that but then if we want to think about like yeah could we use this for more uh, liberatory futures i think that the that yes we could and that what you point to is really the key Again, straight to the heart of the matter, (laughs) which is
5: ignorance brings you, I think,
3: (laughs) clarity. (laughs) Which is, um, what are the structures under which these technologies are being produced? And right now, they're being produced for profit, Um, they're being produced, you know, to do the things that we already do essentially to just try to automate tests we already do. But could we? like radically rethink this? Yeah, I think that we could and that artificial intelligence is actually quite an interesting and powerful technology um, that someone called it. I can't remember who this is. Maybe I can find it. Um, It's like statistics on steroids. So yeah, we could probably do really interesting things with like finding patterns um, that then we could give uh, attention to in new ways so that like maybe instead of using uh, this is from coming from um, a book on feminist technology rather than like using it to redline. Could we use it to say like, oh, look, here we have a vulnerability. Here we have people who are you know not getting loans as easily. How could we? How could we intervene? So yeah, I think we could do <laughs> really interesting things.
4: It sounds like there are really liberatory and sort of emancipatory ways that AI could be used. I want to throw in another, I guess like another factor here which is like how do we think about this globally and how do we think about this kind of in the context of the like materiality of these technologies and by that I just mean like what kind of resources do we need if we were to have these um like uh AI um uh arrangements what would this look like in terms of like how much compute would we need like how how much uh physical resources would kind of go into the computers and where would we be getting those from um and like it seems like this is another aspect that like um um and just to make like a kind of analogy with the climate change example um when we have Technologies in the case of climate change, technologies that we're using in terms of climate change mitigation, like um, electric vehicles and batteries and the solar panels, we often actually see that although we can use these, like um, in the countries where we live, to kind of you know like decrease our carbon emissions, if we look at um, where the minerals and everything comes from for those is often extracted from countries in Latin America, for example, Um, there's a really good, um, uh, um, there's some really good work on this by um, Fioria Franco, who's a um, political scientist in the United States. Um, And I guess when we're, you know, kind of having these conversations about what would a good future with artificial intelligence look like here, um, you know, like in the US or the UK, we also have to think, and like, how could we extend this to everyone around the globe and make this kind of emancipatory for everyone, not just ourselves? So I guess that's a bit of a provocation maybe.
5: Yeah, I love that provocation, <laughs> yeah. Natalie. Yeah. I, I also feel like I wonder um, if artificial intelligence is serving as a mirror. You know, because on the one hand, there is nothing surprising, right? As um, uh, Alexa, you were saying, of course, it just reproduces the existing structural inequalities. But at the same time, it looks like there was an expectation that artificial intelligence would bring some sort of divine justice. Or maybe there was this idea that the, stru- the inequalities that exist are not structural. There is some injustice, maybe because of some bad apple racists, uh, or that the people who are not getting jobs were not deserving it anyway, or they were not working hard enough. So this artificial intelligence actually makes us realize It, you know, so these people are not even given a chance to succeed, or that the system is so unjust that what it reproduces is this. It just makes it even worse. So maybe this moment of surprise, to me, it looks like bigger than a surprise it used to exist 20 years ago. You know, maybe we can use that for the kinds of changes. Um, that, Natalie, you were mentioning. They they would, again, exactly be the same kinds of things we would need to change injustice if there was no artificial intelligence. Yeah, I think that's really
3: right. And I think that the work that we need to do to um, create sort of liberatory artificial intelligence is the sort of work we need to do to create liberatory futures in general and that's not just looking at the like on <laughs> the boat analogy. That maybe if uh, on this sort of upper deck where we're seeing things, it's not just the risk, there, it's also the benefit. And so, we're talking a lot about the benefits of artificial intelligence for a very few people sitting in deck chairs and not for everybody. So, if we want to think about it, you know, in a systemic way, what Natalie talked about for climate change is the same thing we have to look at where do these minerals come from what you know what kind of energy are we using or how are we uh putting artificial intelligence into to solve a problem that might be better solved by another tool and like what happens, like, on the other end, like, where are all of these uh, sort of material artifacts recycled? <laughs> where, so that I think we have to look at the full life cycle of artificial intelligence, and then maybe what we would find in a more um, liberatory artificial intelligence is a very plural artificial intelligence, where it's not being just created by this very teeny you know few people in the deck chairs for the few people in the deck chairs but that people would use it as a tool to um uh, create to to solve various problems you know in their communities so there's lots and lots to think about here because also if we think about the digital divide there's so many people who are just not even included in this picture at all
4: yeah but i think what what you're pointing at is as well as this really important point which is like when we're talking about what a more just future looks like, it's about recognising all of the people who are on the lower decks of the boat as agents in their own right, who, who like, have the power to kind of use um, technologies in their own ways, which, you know, like, um, the people who are on the top of the boat possibly can't even imagine, and those might be completely... Different uses of artificial intelligence or of like technologies to combat climate change or whatever it is um, that we actually you know like you and I at Cambridge University just might not have in our heads at all, which I think is really cool. Um and kind of points to kind of the importance of like making these conversations like a lot wider and making it not just us on the podcast?
3: I think that what the one thing I would change is that I would like um, research agendas to be set by communities um, and not by um, academic researchers or technological researchers. I would like to have communities say what they think that um, researchers like all of us <laughs> should be looking at and i would like communities have a say and say oh well actually the problem that we would like to solve maybe through ai or another technology is this
1: what do what do you really look forward to when you think about the future this whole series is about the future and we're just you know curious to find out from each of you what you look forward to thinking about the future so we'll go to ezra
5: well i i (laughs) I hope that these resources you know make people who have been excluded from the table um, find the means to participate to be in touch with each other, learn from each other, and demand what they deserve. I
3: really look forward to I feel there's so much that so much creativity, technological creativity, academic creativity, you know, artistic creativity that we haven't gotten to enjoy in the world because some people are struggling so hard just to, you know, get get to the table and you know get enough to eat, and I want to hear that. Like I'm excited for that creativity.
4: Yeah, I I 100% agree with what Ezra and Alexa just said. Um, And also I look forward to all of this occurring in a world where we don't have to worry about pollution and carbon emissions and where we can actually be, um, yeah, just like a low carbon society with everything that that means.
2: So that's it. Wow, you sure covered a lot of stuff there. Remind me again, what were some of the key points at the end?
1: Well, Ezra made the point that artificial intelligence sort of acts like a mirror, reflecting back to us all of the inequalities, biases and prejudices already there in society. So in this way, it's a great tool to help us identify where we are going wrong and how we can fix
0: it. I guess this is what our guests mean when they said that AI has the potential to give people social or political freedom and rights.
1: Alexa offered a great example around this term, algorithmic red tape. So red tape refers to the process of following certain regulations or standards. As algorithms are clearly made to follow rules, they end up automating problematic procedures, making them invisible and hidden in the algorithm.
0: So, for example, racial or gender screening on job application sites stop particular applicants from seeing the top jobs. AI might automate the sorts of procedures that did this implicitly beforehand. Not good. So looking deeper at how AI performs these selection processes could tell us why our own hiring practices were so unjust to begin with.
1: And we ended by imagining a carbon-free society in the future. But not only that, also a society which recognises the variety of different communities' needs and a society built on justice and not just equality.
2: That sounds pretty amazing to me.
0: It is. And although this future might seem like a utopia from where we are now, what our guests are telling us is that research into existential risk and ethnographic studies into the different needs of different people is taking us one big step closer to this future.
1: Maybe if Sauron had a few My Little Pony dolls, he wouldn't have been so bad. Although maybe they would have had to be a My Little Balrog or something.
0: That brings us to the end of the episode. Stay tuned for our next one about artificial intelligence.
1: I'm off to tidy up the deck chairs someone unkindly left lying around mind over chatter HQ. I'm blaming Nick.
0: But before then, please fill out our survey. You can find the link in the episode description to tell us what you think of the podcast. Be honest. And make sure to leave us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts.
1: A good one, ideally.
0: And, as ever, please spread the Mind Over Chatter word by telling...
2: Just tell everyone.
1: A huge thanks once again to our guests, Alexa Haggerty, Natalie Jones and Ezra Ozurek, and to our two fantastic behind-the-scenes help of this series, Annie Thwaite and charlotte zemmel
0: music was by the extremely talented carlo lad and artwork by the equally talented alex sadler
2: see you next time Bye. bye